0: Your normal paranormal.
1: Normal is an illusion. What is normal for the spider is chaos for the fly. Come with us on a journey where the cold creeps up on you, where the shadows are larger than life, where you'll lose your courage and possibly
0: your mind. And you like it like that. <laughs>
2: Normal Paranormal Podcast explores the weird, unnatural, and unknown. Subject matter may vary and may contain graphic or explicit content that may not be suitable for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Enter at your own risk.
1: Hi everybody, welcome back to Not Your Normal Paranormal. I'm Kat. I'm Kylie. I'm Robin. And we're a family.
0: Today we're using Robin's tarot deck. It's the demonstrator journey.
1: It's very interesting. And what card did we get? We got the Four of Pinnacles. Cool. What does <laughs> it mean? So
2: the key words are wealth, prosperity, greed, materialism, and superficiality.
1: Okay, I was getting ready to say, "Hot damn!" I can see but the then you kept materialism <laughs> because she's got as much as she can carry in her hands. Okay, <laughs> but she's like wealth and prosperity, and I'm like, "Hot damn!" And then she's like greed, materialism, and I'm like, mm, "No."
2: Reading from the book, it says the Four of Pinnacles shows a character holding her material possessions. The card signifies accomplishment and accumulation of wealth, but also warns against greed and materialism. The character clutches her wealth, but is removed from her town behind. She is immobilized by her possessions and distant from her community. The Four of Pinnacles is positive and negative. Like most of the Pinnacles, this card speaks of prosperity and wealth, but it also warns of the adverse and... Alienating effects that focus on the material that the material can bring. This is a good omen card for those seeking wealth and success, but be aware of the double edge that success wields.
1: Is the train we going to be successful? I like that. I can see the double edge. This week, we're discussing mysterious places. Cut is going first with The Coffins of Off. Oth- uh. Arthur's Seat. I totally spelled it. Completely
0: wrong. I, I wrote authors. <laughs> but I, and I forgot the R everywhere.
1: Coffins of Arthur's Seat. That sounds really interesting. Um, I've never heard of it. So it. I'm prepared to learn.
0: It's not as interesting as I thought it would be upon discovering it. But it's a little bit interesting. Um...
1: She's got she's got tabs, people. She's got tabs in to highlight specific points. Um I have I should have marked it.
2: Oh, okay. I will
0: Oh I guess it's all okay, that makes sense.
2: Kayleigh does not have her notes in
0: order. They are in order. As just, usual. Shut up. They're always in order. They are not. Done. <laughs> you flip back and forth. Okay. Yeah, but there was this one thing that I swear I wrote down that I can't find that I wanted to open with. Um But anyways, it's fine. In late June 1836, a group of boys went to the northeast slopes of Edinburgh's Arthur's Seat to hunt for rabbits, which um, they were technically looking for the rabbits' burrows. Um, But instead of finding that, they found um, a baffling mystery. Not that it's all that baffling, but I guess it kind of is.
1: I mean, in
0: 1836, yeah, but with today's technology, no. Yeah, they didn't know. In a secluded spot on the northeast side of the hill, they discovered a small cave um, in the rock. It was hidden behind three-pointed slabs of slate, um, and inside of it were 17 miniature coffins. Only eight coffins survived to present day, and here's why. The little shithead boys pelted the coffins and what? destroyed half of them. With what? Well, they were looking for rabbits, so they had pelt guns or something. Wow. But, yeah. So, only eight coffins survived to present day, and they're on display at the National Museum of Scotland.
1: How many were there begin with them How There were 17,
0: and only eight made it. Um, but it's, less people, it's left people asking who made the intricate carved figures inside, which obviously at this point it didn't tell you there were figures inside, and who did they represent, and who placed them there, and why. So, Arthur's Seat sits on the distinctive volcanic hill that rises up beyond Edinburgh's Old Town. Um, it's a place that seeped with history and mystery, apparently, um, it's the possible site for King Arthur's famed Camelot, and it is home to the Celtic, VON, not, not Vaughn. It's goodness gracious! I'm reading an "n" in there, and I'm not supposed. There's not an "n" there, but my brain puts one there every time I look at the word. Vot Edini. Bought it in a tribe in 1414. My goodness, in 400 AD. Over the centuries, it's been the scene of a medieval miracle, an 18th century murder, and a fictional encounter with the devil. What should I've been trying to find information about everything that was listed there? I found nothing on the internet about it. Like, you can't find
1: anything about any of the stories,
0: not anything that's. Other than Camelot, but, I mean, at this point in time, if you don't know Camelot, you probably should.
1: How am I going to say it's a fictional encounter with the devil if there's no information. I think it's in a book. Well.
0: No. Somebody wrote about it. I can see um, that. But the tiny coffins were arranged under the slates in three tiers. It had two tiers of eight and then one coffin on the top. Each coffin had a figure that was about four inches in length, three to four inches in length. Um, it was expertly carved and dressed in custom-made clothes that had been stitched and glued around them, so, you know, you have to cut it off on Um.
1: On the figures inside? hmm And they're tiny? They were about three to four inches tall. Three to four inches wide. They were like modern-day action figures. i mm, pretty sure that's what it That's what she did.
0: She did. Well, the first one's got it, and, you know... The measurements that we don't measure in, but somewhere throughout here, it says how tall they were, and I think it was three to four inches.
1: No, that's okay. Go ahead. I'm just clarifying for myself.
0: Yeah. So, the newspapers of the time fell on the story, and each had a different theory. So, the Scotsman published, it's a satanic spell manufactory. So, the article was published July 16th of 1836, and they're basically saying... That it's witchcraft and demonology, um, because the weird sisters are still around, um, which is, you know, then the witches came in three and they were sisters, and
2: that's why a lot of,
0: yeah, usually, even in a lot of the books and stuff you see today, um, but they were claiming that, um, their ancient power was working the spells of death by entombing the likeness of those they wished to destroy within the 17 coffins. Um, A month later, the Edinburgh Evening Post proposed a more measured solution, claiming that the coffins represented an ancient custom which prevailed um, in Saxony of burying... um, of departed friends who died in a distant land.
1: Like an effigy. Yes. Okay.
0: And... um, they also linked it to how sailors used to do it um, to give a Christian burial to anybody that they lost a sea.
1: Okay. Okay, so I probably missed it. Did you say what the figures were made of? I know you said clothes were pasted on them. They were wooden. They,
0: they were, were carved,
1: hand-carved. Okay.
0: Okay. Um, after the initial the initial flurry of media interest, the coffins passed into the hands of a private collector. Reappearing in 1901, when eight were donated to the Museum of the Society of Antiqui- Antiquities Yeah, of Scotland. I have no idea why I've got letters and words that should not be there. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I can tell you, I
0: don't and from there, to National Museum, Scotland. What happened to the remaining nine? The Scotsmen tell us that a number were destroyed by the boys. Although we're not exactly sure how many it was. But it... Uh, But, um, like, it was a lot. Five years later, in 1906, the Scotsman published another bizarre story about the coffins, stating, A lady residing in Edinburgh had told the paper that her father had sometimes visited, had been visited at his business by a daft man. On one occasion, the man had drawn on a piece of paper a picture of three small coffins with the dates 1837, 1838, and 1840 written underneath. In the autumn of 1837, a near relative of the man died. The following year, a cousin died, and in 1840, his own brother died. After the funeral, the daft—I don't know why at first they just described him as a daft man, which I guess this is just to give clarity to those who don't know exactly what that means— is he was um, deaf and mute. Uh, well, that's what they called him back then. Yeah. So he appeared again and walked into the man's office, and then after that he vanished and was never seen again. So then they fast forward to 1976, um, and Walter Havernick, the director of the Museum of Hamburg History, had come up with a new theory referring to a German seafaring superstition. Seafaring?
1: Seafaring. yeah.
0: To Of keeping mandrake roots or dolls in tiny coffins as talisman. He um, said that they were a horde of lucky charms hidden in the hillside by a merchant to be sold to sailors.
1: Wow. <clears clears> that also <there> so <throat> brings into play. I mean, I don't know about you, but the first time I've ever heard of mandrakes was on Harry Potter. So, yeah. that kind of gives me a visual... <laughs> Of what this was
0: um the use of charms persisted in scotland um but not in ireland as much so no evidence of this particular tradition has been found in ireland up until this point they're saying basically
1: okay so they're they're saying that they're throwing it was a german thing people are throwing out theories right and this guy is saying that he thinks it's a German thing that somehow worked its way into Ireland. This guy was.
0: Yes. Okay. Um, because the use of charms like that were used in Scotland well into the 19th century. But um, it's no evidence of it has been found throughout Scotland in that time period. Okay. All of the figures appear to be made by the same hand, although it's possible the coffins were crafted by two different people. Some of the materials and tools used were wood, iron embellishments, nails, and a sharp hooked knife, which indicate the coffins could have been fashioned by a shoemaker. Um, the figures seem to form a
1: set. Tiny, yeah. Oh, they're all a set. They're a set.
0: So, um, the figures seem to form a set and their upright bearing flat feet and swinging arms suggest they may have been toy soldier- soldiers their eyes were made open, making it unlikely that they were originally designed in place of a corpse.
1: So right now they're like booty dolls.
0: Some of the figures are missing their arms, but they were probably removed so that they could fit into the coffins. So usually they would take the arms and lay them on top
1: of them and then close the coffin lid. Okay, so because you're saying usually and I'm like, is that a thing? Or because I would <laughs> think they would make the coffin to fit fits a little figure. Yeah. Like,
0: that's what... That's what they did in the Old Like,
1: they would come out and measure the body in the street and be like, okay, this long, this wide, and make a box to fit. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, these aren't bodies, but still, I would think if you're going to go to that much trouble to construct something like that.
0: Yeah. It says uh, the fabric that they're dressed in um, dates from the early 1830s, so they hadn't been there for more than six years at most when they were discovered. Really? So that kind of takes away all of the mystery. Like, they've not been there for a long time,
1: which but I was still, hoping to find out. There's a, still no, some mystery, yeah. though, because where did they come but from? But I mean, like. And what purpose do they have? I understand what you're saying. You're thinking it would have been interesting if, if it was for a more ancient yeah, time. But
0: it wasn't. It was from six years ago, at most.
1: Well, to me, there's still mystery. So because at this point, who did it? who made them and what was their purpose?
0: At this point we know where they came from and when they were buried, but what do they represent? Mm-hmm. Um so we're going to take a step back in time to the early 19th century of Edinburgh. Um so celebrated as the seat of the Scottish Enlightenment transformed by the creation of the Georgian New Town. And in 1822, graced by the first visit of the reigning monarch since 1650, Edinburgh had much to boast about in the early 19th century. Um, so, Deacon Brody was a respectable tradesman, counselor, and the deacon of incorporation of rights by... But at night, he turned his skills as a locksmith and, and cabinetmaker maker. Um he, he he was breaking and entering. Right. To elaborate. He was just breaking and entering, so he took his <laughs> the knowledge
1: skills to break and enter.
0: Um he had a plan to burgle the um excess office and that led to his downfall. He was hanged on Edinburgh's High Street before a crowd of forty thousand people. Um they also and this only links in because they found a lantern and 25 lockpicks used as evidenced against him on trial that were found hidden um, near Arthur's seat.
1: I can see. I mean, so in the area. It doesn't necessarily make him guilty, but I can see how they went that way. Also, yeah. not to take away from his plight of hanging in front of 40,000 people, but I love that word, burgle.
0: <laughs> By the early 1800s, Edinburgh was Renowned as a center of medical excellence, its reputation as a place to study the healing arts was second to none. Um, I'm gonna go to the key to this understanding, the key to this education was an understanding of anatomy, um, and the study was becoming increasingly hard. Um, so basically, everybody in the area were getting their staff from the School of Edinburgh. Right. Um, but they were running short of cadavers for dissection.
1: <gasps> this is where people digging bodies.
0: <laughs> so it was so the supply and demand were off balance. So people started digging up bodies, and so the practice of body snatching began. And they were selling them to the anatomists.
1: Um, and probably making a very lucrative deal.
0: Yeah. The practice horrified the Scottish. Okay, so I guess we are in Scotland. I have no yeah, idea Edinburgh. where my yeah. brain is going with Ireland. It's because we were just talking about coming up earlier.
1: Okay. I was with you in
0: Scotland. Did you say Ireland people? I was with you well, in Scotland. No, because it, it's got to make sure of those type of people in here, I guess. Irish immigrants, Burke and Hare. Yes, Burke and Hare. There's a movie. Are you covering that? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay, go. Um, They begin their murderous career almost by accident when an an elderly tenant of Hare's boarding house in the Westport died, owing him money. To recoup the losses, Burke and Hare sold the man's body to Robert Knox for use in his anatomy school in the Surgeon's Square.
1: Okay, that's just good
0: business, though, because he owed him money. Easy money, right? But with nobody else in the boarding house prepared to drop dead on their own accord, the pair thought they'd hurry the process along a bit, and so began a vicious killing spree that lasted ten months, that during which no Burke and Hare dispatched at least sixteen victims and earned around hundred and fifty. What would that be? Pounds, I guess. It would be pounds. But in today's money, that would be twelve hundred or twelve thousand. Twelve thousand per body. Per body? Or I don't think it was per body.
1: That's total. I think it was total. I was going to say, that's a lot of money. Um, They, they would have been dispatching a lot more. Yeah. I didn't know they killed them. I thought they were doing the body snatching like other people were. I haven't seen the movie. I just know, uh, spoiler alert, Simon Pegg is in the movie. <laughs> along with, um, I'm not going to remember his name, but he played Gollum on Lord of the Rings. I don't remember his name either, but... Andy. It's Andy something.
0: She doesn't like Gollum, so... She wouldn't know, I know sad. um, so at first, they were choosing their victims carefully, picking off um, people who were weren't likely to be missed. But as the time went by, they got sloppy, killing local figures who were instantly recognizable when uncovered on the slab.
1: Wow. <laughs> so they went outside the boarding house. They were like, old people, this is no fun. months ago and killed people who are well known. Yeah, okay. no, not, they weren't very
0: smart. um. In November 1828, <clears throat> the duo were arrested. Hare turned King's witness and granted immunity from prosecution because he sold his out his friend down the river. <laughs> well, of course. Um, Say it yourself. At 8.30 in the morning on Christmas morning in 1828, Burke was charged with the murder. On January 28th, he was hanged in Edinburgh's law, lawn market before a crowd of thousands.
1: I didn't give a specific number. Nobody did head count for that one.
0: The following day, his body was publicly dissected at the University of Edinburgh's Medical School. And um, I found an article that states that they agree that the punishment indeed fit the crime.
1: Well, back then, you did get hanged for murder. I mean... They dissected him the next day after they hung him. Okay, well, (laughs) fair. Again, I'm going to go with fair, because he's he's killing people and putting them on the slab. They're like, all right, dude yeah let's check you out i can see that andy circus by the way people sorry that bugs me if i don't mean my hair
0: got away with it because he sold out somebody else for probably a lesser crime it, the other person was probably just body snatching welcome to i mean um, crime and punishment so this tale ties into the coffins because the they had a total of 17 victims mm-hmm. I know it says 16 earlier, but that's because they're not including the old man. He was not he was accidentally not part of it at at the beginning.
1: The very, the very first guy.
0: So there were 17 coffins and they were 17 victims. And it was buried just a few years after Broken Hair's sensational story had hit headlines.
1: So they're thinking Were the dolls anatomically correct? Did they only kill men? I mean not anatomically correct, excuse me. That's not what I meant. I meant were they anatomical? (laughs) We'll get there.
0: Woo! We'll there. So no they're, more so they're thinking that the coffins represented as a substitute for the poor, friendless souls that were dispatched by the murderous pair. So it could be true, but 12 of Burke and Hare's victims were female, and all of the figures in the coffin were all dressed as men. But perhaps the figures were just simply meant as symbols, but... I
1: don't know. They're yeah. trouble to put clothes on.
0: But they still don't know who buried them. They're asking, you know, maybe it was somebody that was close to the murders or an onlooker that was just sympathetic, but um, they found their way into the Museum of Collections and they have been on display and continue to fascinate, but I found another article and I swear I wrote it down, but it is not in my notebook at all anywhere now, but it was a better article that was stating that um, the people that found the coffins... Um, One of the people that was part of the, when the boys came back, was like, hey, we found this. And they went and looked. And they kept them. And then after this woman's father died, because I guess he's the one that kept them, she donated them to the museum. Oh, okay. So it took a while for that to happen. I think she said that her dad had them for 20 years.
1: Wow. So they just kept them. Yeah, he kept them. I can see that though. I mean, kind of if you found something like that, if you had something like that, <clears throat> you would think of it more as a collector's thing than something that needed to be reported because not real bodies, right? Yeah. It's like art, kind of. Yeah. And we still don't know what they were supposed to represent.
0: No. I was, which is
1: weird. My I question was though just is. I hoping
0: to find something a little bit more fascinating about it, but.
1: Well, my question is if they think it's a, um, a German tradition, what do the Germans do it for? What is their what is their process of? Is it to uh, memor m- like memorialize a loved one who died? Well, the, oh, you said something about seafaring. Was that the Germans? Yeah. Okay, so they were like dated for people lost they, at sea. They would put
0: dolls or uh, mandrake roots and tiny coffins as talismans. Right,
1: right. Because if they're lost at sea, you are not going to be And They have were the thought
0: of lucky char- as lucky charms.
1: I'm sorry, every time you say that, I think you're it's magically delicious. Magical. <laughs> I'm sorry, people. Listen, we know we're we're weird and we like it like that.
0: <laughs> and that concludes the coffins of Arthur's feet. When I said it right that time, I have no See, idea you what know, went on and I was writing this because you know, it's a, every time I wrote off Arthur's, I either wrote authors or I wrote Arthur's without the R.
1: Authors,
0: But in my defense, it was like two o'clock in the morning. Okay, but
1: to be fair, though, to be fair to you. You don't think it's a very interesting story. I think it's an interesting story it is, because interesting. It, leaves you, it, just, it leaves you wondering. There's just no conclusion.
0: I think it would be more interesting <clears throat> if they had been dated back longer than six years before they were found.
1: I don't know. I don't know why they have to be old to be
0: Because it would be more interesting that they survived all that time in that cave and nobody up until this point of time found them.
1: Okay, I can see that because they're made of wood, which means also that they wouldn't have survived that long unless it was some kind of supernatural thing. So, fair. But now I'm going to wonder. Coffin, what? I don't... Never heard of it, but yeah, I thought it was interesting. Yeah, it was cool. Too bad I don't get any answers to all my Robin. many, many, many questions. Robin's have seven <laughs> Yeah, it was cool. Robin's chilling. Okay, so... I'm covering the Winchester House, and this—that is exactly what I wrote on my notebook. I'll take a picture if you want to see it. But I wrote the Winchester House, and while I'm doing my research, it is known as the Winchester Mystery House. I didn't know that. Mm. It's—it's it's the Winchester Mystery House. Mansion's not even in it, which is ridiculous. But um, the Winchester Mystery House is an architectural wonder and historic landmark in San Jose, California. There are many theories about the house and its owner. Um, but there's no denying that it was um, that it's got a lot of um, the occult and spiritualism tied to it. One way, one way or another, one way or another, I learned some things that I didn't know. And listen, I am very fascinated with Winchester House. And in fact, spoiler alert, I get to see it in March. (laughs) Okay, the other people at the table are not happy with me, but I'm going to send them pictures. Like selfies. Like, look where I am. They're going to hate me when I come home. Anyway, I love you. Anyway, there are a lot of theories. A lot of theories. I wrote at one point that there are three theories that is untrue. There are so many more theories about what this is and, and I've only heard really one in my lifetime. Not that that's all there is, just that's all anybody told me or that I bothered to find out. So, here are some facts about the house before I get into the story. Are you ready? I'm ready. It was originally an eight-room farmhouse that Sarah Winchester bought when she moved to California. It is now twenty-four thousand square feet. It has 10,000 windows. It has 2,000 doors. It has 160 rooms. It has 52 skylights, including one in the floor. Not kidding. There's one in the floor. There's 40 stairways. There are 47 fireplaces, 17 chimneys, 13 bathrooms. Hello, please. Six kitchens. I mean... You can only cook so much and somebody's going to have to clean. (laughs) That's all I'm saying. And there are three elevators, which were built way, like, before. It It
0: doesn't,
1: you know, it doesn't mention mirrors. I'm going to count them when I'm there, though. I am. I'm going to go for Kylie, whatever room. Actually, I'll just ask a tour guide. Hey, I'm not going to go through and count. I know you know how many mirrors are in here. I need to tell my niece. (laughs) It costs. It's Okay. It says the total cost was $5 million in 1923, which is when building stopped. That's $71 million of today's money. It also says the house was designed like a labyrinth. Deliberately designed like a labyrinth. Okay, so before we get into extra stuff about the house, we're going to talk about the lady who built it. Sarah Lockwood. Hardy, says she was born in 1840, that's the most common that I've seen, <clears throat> although one um, historical site said there's really no documentation, um, if you go based on the census, she was born sometime between 1835 and 1845, and they put it at 1840. I saw another that had it at 1839, but it's roughly 1840, Um. There's a lot of stuff about her early life. She was like the fifth of seven children, the seventh of nine, something like that. <laughs> it was odd numbers. And she was born in New Haven, Connecticut. She um, married William Wirt Winchester. Talk about an alliteration. Hey, remember that for categories. <laughs> in 1862, at the age of 22, um, William was the son of Oliver Winchester, manufacturer of one of the first repeating rifles. Now, a lot of you know that part. Um, They owned the Winchester Repeating Arms Company. What you don't know is that started actually in 1866. Prior to that, Oliver and his partner owned a clothing store. Yes. Yes. Theirs was a happy marriage by all appearances, and four years after the wedding, they welcomed a daughter, Annie Party Winchester, their only child. Um, tragically, they lost their baby girl when she was um, only six weeks old with something called, I am winging it here because I meant to write it down and I didn't. I'm not even going to say it. It's like marsusis or something like that. It is a disease where the body doesn't um, absorb proteins and nutrients like it's supposed to. So, even though they were feeding her and, and like, taking care of her, her body just wouldn't absorb it. And she passed away. That was in 1866, the same year they started the rifle company. And, of course, they took the the death of their baby girl hard. But, and they never had any more children. I don't know why. doesn't, there's nothing that really says that. In 1880, Sarah's father-in-law, Oliver, passed away. And was followed a year later by her husband, who died of tuberculosis in March of 1881. Upon his death, uh, Sarah inherited 20 million dollars and 50% ownership in the Winchester Repeating Arms Company. Um, it says she. One thing says, and this was by a friend of hers at the time, says that after the death, she took a. She left New Haven which is where she was born and raised and went on a three-year kind of sabbatical to Europe. What she did there is not really recorded. I don't guess there were letters back and forth or whatever. Um, And then after that, in 1884 is when she settled in California to be close to uh, several of her relatives who had gone to California during the 1849 Gold Rush. They were kind of spread out. She um, first settled like in the Bay Area and then it said moved inland to Santa Clara. Yeah, Santa Clara, which now is San Jose. So she settled in California and she bought an eight room farmhouse. Now, a couple of things you need to know before we talk about her house is she was, let me turn the page because I had to write all of this down. She was a staunch Baconian Masonic. She also acquired a vast and uncanny, this is like their words, uncanny knowledge of Masonic, I'm going to say this wrong, Roscurian, Roscurian, hmm, I knew I said it wrong, ritual and symbology. Additionally, she gravitated toward theosophy. Yeah, that's the word. Anyway, all of this is to take into consideration because the three theories about her was um, she built the house and not long or she bought the house. Not long after she bought the house, she hired 20 carpenters to come in and renovate and reconstruct. And um, this continued. I've seen 36 years, 38 years. I'm pretty sure it's 38 years. Until the day that she died, from, from the time she bought the house and started it, which I don't think was the first day, but maybe a couple of weeks in, it wasn't long until the day she died. The house was built on this says 247, 365, which would drive me bonkers. Says so the first theory is she was trying to relive happier times. According to the Los Angeles Times, she and her husband William had overseen the building of their former residence in New Haven. Connecticut together and they thought she was building because that was a really happy time in her life to remind her of that the second theory is that Sarah was being philanthropic at heart wow that she was philanthropic at heart I did put was being I really did she employed dozens of carpenters says 20 she started with 20 I did not find a total well I'm sure she did because they had to work in shifts right because they couldn't come in and work 24 hours somebody had to go home and sleep otherwise going to be a lot of accidents anyway they worked around the clock and she paid them triple the rate of similarly skilled carpenters she had lots this is a quote she had quote lots of money and wanted to keep her workers gainfully employed end quote that's another theory um, the third, and most widely popular, is that, Then they called it a bizarre theory, is that Sarah was acting on the advice of a medium who, while supposedly chan- channeling her late husband, said she needed to build enough rooms for all the souls of people killed by the Winchester rifles. Legend is that the home's labyrinth of rooms within rooms, interior-facing windows, Doors that open to walls and stairs leading to nowhere were all part of a grand plan to confuse the spirits of the dead. Now, having said that, this woman spoke four languages. She was very smart. And she is the sole architect of this house. They said that um, every night she would go into what was known, it was like a top, um, kind of the top of a tower that had windows. In the house that was called the witch's cap. She would go in there every night and people could hear talking. And then she would come out and tell them what they were to do the next day. Like there was no long term. This is what we're going to do for the next several months. Every night she came out with plans. This is what we're going to do tomorrow. This is what we did today. Tomorrow is this. So people were like, "Mm." nobody knows where the plans came from, but they always came at night. She was known to hold like seances and stuff in the house, which... To be fair to Sarah was very popular during that time. We talked about this when we talked about occultism. It was that was huge during that time. People passing away, and you want to be able to communicate. Like, I'm sure it broke her heart when her baby daughter died, but worse, in my opinion, would be for her husband, because somebody that she could talk to, somebody that she spent all that time with. You know, she would want to talk to him. Anyway those are the going theories. There's a thing I'm going to read here. It's from, it's just called the truth about Sarah Winchester.com. It says, aside from the immense size and Victorian style architecture, the house has a number of unique characteristics. To begin, it is undeniably a a labyrinth that is always, always referred to as labyrinth or labyrinth-like. There are literally miles of maze-like corridors and twisting hallways, some of which have dead ends forcing the travelers to turn around and back up. There are also some centrally located passages and stairways that serve as shortcuts, allowing a virtual leap from one side of the house to the other. Traversing the labyrinth is truly dizzying and disorienting to one's sensibilities. Also, you have to be careful. And I know they have this roped off so that like people who come to visit can't go there, but there are doors that literally you open them. And if you took a step through, you would fall yeah. probably to your death. The house abounds in oddities and anomalous features. There are rooms within rooms. There's a staircase that leads nowhere, abruptly halting at the ceiling in another place. There's a door which opens into a solid wall. Some of the houses, 47 chimneys, have an overhead ceiling. How many chimneys did I say? Yeah, 47 fireplaces. 47 chimneys have an overhead ceiling, while in some places there are skylights covered by a roof. And some skylights are covered by another skylight. And in one place, Kylie, there's a skylight built into the floor. There are tiny doors leading into large spaces and large doors that lead into very small spaces. That makes me think of Alice in Wonderland. It really does. In another part of the house, a second story door opens outward to a sheer drop to the ground below. Moreover, upside down pillars can be found all about the house. Many visitors to the Winchester Mansion have justifiably compared to It's strange design to the work of the late Dutch artist MCC Escher. Adding further to the mysterious features, the prime numbers 7, 11, and 13 are repeatedly displayed in various ways throughout the house. The number 13 being most prominent. These numbers consistently show up in the number of windows in the many rooms, or the number of stairs on the staircases, or the number of rails in the railings, the number of panels in the floors and walls, or the number of lights in the chandelier, etc., Unquestionably, these three prime numbers were extremely important to Sarah and to Frances Bacon. Remember I mentioned she was Baconian. Well ahead ahead of her time, Mrs. Winchester employed many high-tech interventions of her day. She is believed to have been the first builder to use um, wool insulation. The house was lit with carbide gas lights that were supplied by its own gas manufacturing plant. Handles of electric buttons were used to operate the lights by means of electromechanical strikers, which cause a spark to ignite the various lamps. So she kind of invented her own or started her own electrical lights. So I think it's pretty awesome. Yeah. That was 18, what did I tell you? 1884 between 1922. That's crazy. Um, Sarah was also among the first to make use of a shower. Smart woman. <laughs> she had a jacuzzi. <laughs> <laughs> and elevators two driven by hydraulics and a third by electricity practically a small town unto itself the winchester estate was virtually self-sufficient self-sufficient with its own carpenter and plumbers workshops along with an on-premise water and electrical supply and a sewage drainage system news of mrs winchester's death on september the 5th 1922 found her workers halting construction leaving nails half driven into the walls In accordance with her 12-page, 13-part will, signed by her 13 times, Sarah had her entire estate divided into generous portions to be distributed among a number of charities and those people who had faithfully spent years in her service. Her favorite niece and secretary, Marian Marriott, yeah, that's her name, oversaw the removal and um, sale of all of her furnishings and personal property. Roy Lieb, her attorney of many years, had the named... In her will as executor to her estate, he sold the house to the people who, in 1933, um, preserved it as a living museum. Today, it is known as the Winchester Mystery House, also known as California Historical Landmark No. 868. Although no mention ever surfaced as to any specific guidelines or special instructions by which Mr. Leib would select a buyer for the property, one gets the distinct impression that Sarah wanted the house to stand intact and perpetually preserved, and so it does. Now, the folklore is, despite the fact that Sarah Winchester was extremely secretive about herself, nearly all of what the public thinks it knows about her reads like a mismatch of gossip out of National Enquirer. <laughs> that's that's the article, not me. Um, <clears throat> This person calls it the folklore just because there are so many different things that was said about her and um, she was very reclusive when it says that that her estate was kind of a small town unto itself she didn't go out there there are very very few photographs of her there's only one that i know of that was taken like on the estate and she's sitting in the carriage um but she would come out and meet with the worker or the foreman every morning to give them their instructions she didn't go into town she had servants going to town i also read that when she died um, all of the people who had worked for her and had they did work for her for years, um very loyal to her. She paid them. I'm triple. But when she died, they left. They walked off the property and like went about their daily business. and i I guess they found a few to ask them, you know, what was it like working there. Not one of them would ever talk about it. Not one of them would ever say like anything that had happened there or anything about her personal um, business, really. Nothing about who came and went. I know that it said, one article said that uh, Teddy Roosevelt wanted to meet up with her. And she was like, mm, no. And Harry Houdini went to the house. I believe that was after she was dead. And it was kind of a landmark. And he went because a lot of people know Harry Houdini as a uh, magician which I would like to cover him sometime, note to self. Uh, he also went through a period where he was um, strongly into the occult, but he would go to different places, different mediums, with the sole purpose of proving that, of debunking them, essentially.
2: I notice.
1: And he went to the Winchester house, and he was like, it's just a very, very weird. He called it the Winchester Mystery House. And he was like, "I, and, you know, Something's odd about it, <laughs> but he wouldn't get into it, but he did, he couldn't debunk it. Excuse me. So some of the um, folklore says that after William's death, she sought out the advice of then famous Boston medium, Adam Coons, which I've heard his name before. During a seance with Coons, she was told that because of um, the many people who'd been slain by the Winchester rifle, she was cursed by the Winchester fortune he further instructed uh, Sarah that the angry spirits demanded that she moved to California and build them a house. I want to make a note here that um, there were a lot of gun sales back then. Like a lot of gun manufacturers back then. A lot of people didn't feel guilt about, you know, there wasn't mass shootings and stuff like that. People had them for protection. People had them for hunting. People had them for different reasons. But, people
0: had more sense back then.
1: Well, that's fair too. But, uh, you know, you as a gun manufacturer, you didn't go to bed at night going, gosh, I wonder what somebody's going to do with a gun that I just, you know, sold them. Because you don't have any control over them. Um, yeah. Okay, upon her arrival in California, Sarah began holding her own seances every midnight so that she could receive the next day's building instructions from the spirits. Her sci- seances allegedly involved the use of a Ouija board and planchette, and 13 various colored robes she would ritualistically sorry, ritualistically wear each night for the education, edification, Jesus, <laughs> Lord, edification of the spirits within the confines of her seance room. To further appease the angry spirits, Mrs. Winchester made sure the construction of the house went on nonstop, 24 7, 365 days a year, for fear that should the building ever stop, she would die. For some inexplicable reason, however, Mrs. Winchester took precautions in the building designed so as to incorporate all of the strange features of the house to confuse the evil spirits. Moreover, she would ring her alarm bell every night at midnight to signal the spirits that it was seance time, and then again at 2 a.m. signaling the spirits that it was time to depart, which begs the question, who was in charge of whom, and why would spirits have an inability or need to keep track of time, which, yeah, I don't like ringing a dinner bell. Hey. Hey. Furthermore, Sarah infused the number 7 into the architecture and 13 because they were lucky numbers. Oh, and the number 13 is an unlucky number that she used to ward off evil spooks. Why would you use lucky and unlucky? She also slept in a different room every night as an extra measure. That's true. She that I mean, I can't say it's true. It's reported widely that she slept in a different room every night.
0: How could you sleep with all the construction going
1: on? Anyway, this um, just goes on to talk more about that, which is what most of us are familiar with if we know about the house. Um, I'm going to close it out because I feel like I give you a lot of information, a lot of history because I like to delve into that and then I don't give you the fun stuff. So, like, the spirit's
0: Helped her design the house. But, That's
1: what they're saying. But, but she built it to confuse the spirits. Which doesn't predicts. make sense. Right. So, it just, is she in tune with the spirits? And she's going, let me borrow some of your knowledge so that I can do this. Or is she a terrified woman afraid and building the room so that the spirits will leave her alone? Doesn't make sense. Doesn't make sense. Okay. I mean, the architecture of it... <clears throat> And I'll tell you more about this after I visit it. But the <laughs> architecture <laughs> she's gonna she's gonna punch me in a minute. The architecture of it something is up. skylights in the floor, doors going nowhere. I mean, even if you even if you want to keep your workers employed gainfully employed, you're gonna think of a way to do it that doesn't involve doors going nowhere. Oh, also fun fact, it used to be seven stories tall. But it, or the earthquake of 1906 took some of it out. She was trapped in a bedroom. She was fine, but she was trapped in a bedroom overnight. They had to dig her out. And after that, um, it was down to four, four stories. And she never built higher than that again. Oh, there was some kind of theory at the time, which I didn't delve into that and I should have. There was some kind of theory at the time that she felt like the spirits were telling her that She's building in a direction they didn't want her to go or... Don't
0: go up, go out, <laughs> go down.
1: <Right>. Anyway, <clears throat> it says it's a Queen Anne Revival mansion on the outside and a construction oddity on the inside. And here are five, I guess, okay. spooky stories. Five spooky stories about the Winchester house. Um, the Hall of Fires. Some employees who worked at the mansion for for Mrs. Winchester are said to have stayed on after their death. Haven't heard that. Heard they all left. There are footsteps heard shuffling to and from Mrs. Winchester's room, her servants. There's an apparition with black hair who is frequently spotted pushing a wheelbarrow. Perhaps that labor is what a present-day worker encountered in the Hall of Fire, so named for its many fireplaces. Prior to the mansion opening for tours one day, the worker was on a ladder. He felt a tap on his shoulder turned, and no one was there. The worker refocused his intention on his task. That's when he felt what seemed like a hand pressing against his back. He was still the only one in the room, but not for long. That worker got out of there fast, leaving the otherworldly laborer labeler, labeler <laughs> the otherworldly laborer alone to handle the job. Yeah, me too. Stop pushing me up on the ladder. <laughs> what? Sarah sealed room. This is what I was just telling you about. The 1906 earthquake that destroyed San Francisco also caused serious damage to Mrs. Winchester's house. In fact, she was trapped in a room until her workers were able to set her free. Deeply shaken by her experience, Mrs. Winchester had the room sealed. It stayed that way until last year. I think this was written in 2016. Anyway, it stayed that way until last year when the room was opened and added to tours. On one of those tours, a guide gathered... Participants in the room to explain the history and point out the objects found inside more than a hundred years after being sealed. The guide heard a loud sigh in the hallway and went outside to bring in the straggler. She didn't find any tourists, but did see a small ghostly form gliding around the corner. The guide quickly followed. She didn't see anyone, yet she heard another sigh. Perhaps Mrs. Winchester had used the sealed room as a refuge from tourists. A quick side note, which I didn't cover. Um, because they say the ceilings aren't very big in the house. Sarah Winchester was four foot ten. Wow. Yeah. Oh. <clears throat> surveillance video of a ghost. What happens during the Winchester I'm sorry. Let me start again. <laughs> <laughs> what happens during the witching hour at the Winchester Mystery House? Strange things if the surveillance video is to be believed. There is a video um on this page. You can look it up because I don't wanna post it for Proprietary reasons. But there's a video it shows here. Take a look at the video below. Keep an eye on the top floor balcony. What do you see 15 seconds in? So we're going to watch it real quick (laughs) so we can see. Uh, Number four, what's in that photo? Just as unexpected things turn up on video, the same is true of photographs. The Winchester Mystery House's own public relations coordinator reports that he took several photos of the mansion in 2015. When he downloaded the photos, he deleted what he didn't need, but one caught his eye. In one window of the house, Tim O'Day spotted something. Was it a shadow, a reflection of a cloud, or something else? Visitors to the Winchester Mystery House also reported taking photos with strange shapes in the windows. A few even shared their snapshots on Facebook. If you visit, study all photos carefully before hitting the delete button. You never know what you'll find. I'm going to be taking like a gazillion photos. (laughs) We're going to put them on something and blow them up. Stop making that face. I would take you if I could. This is five. Helen Mirren as Sarah Winchester, which we knew. There was a movie out recently. Helen Mirren played Sarah Winchester, but I don't understand how that's a spooky fact. Oh. Filmmakers from Australia are making the movie. Okay. Um, this mentions Friday the Thirteenth, Kylie. I don't know when this was, but it says, "Have you looked at the calendar? This Friday is Friday the Thirteenth. It's not." <laughs> not not right now. Mrs. Winchester was said to be fascinated by the number 13. Every Friday the 13th, the bell tolls 13 times on the 13th hour, 1 p.m. If you stop by to video the event, remember to check all video and photos carefully before deleting. You never know who will show up unexpectedly in your keepsakes. <laughs> it just makes me want to go even more. And I am going. I don't care if they look evil at me because I would take them if I could. Anyway, and that's... The Winchester Mystery House. And I'm sure there's a lot more to know about it.
0: I want to do like a 24-hour hold in the house, like, ghost investigation. I think that would be fun.
1: Oh, this, The Winchester House? Yeah.
0: For I don't know hours. what
1: they would let us do, though. They do have After Dark Tours now. Anyway, that's the Winchester Mystery House. Which I still find fascinating and will probably read more about because... I just love it. Plus, I'm going to have pictures taken in, even if there's no activity while I'm there, Kylie. Now we're going to go to Robin, who's telling us they about. They might
0: look at your you, rooms or whatever, but they're not going to be like, hey, cat." <laughs>
1: well, no. They're going to avoid me like a play, like they do.
2: Okay, Robin. Somewhere in Russia, a signal of mysterious beeps and buzzes has broadcast since the hot water days of the Cold War. But why? So, UVB-6, also known as the buzzer, is a nick- the buzzer being the nickname. I it
0: was 76. What did I say? You forgot the 70
2: part. UVB-76, a.k.a. the buzzer, which is the nickname given by radio listeners to a shortwave radio station that broadcasts on the frequencies right. 4,625 and 4,810 KHZ. It broadcasts a short, monotonous buzz tone, <coughs> repeating at a rate of approximately 25 tones per minute, 24 hours a day. Sometimes the, buzzer sig- sometimes the buzzer signal is interrupted and a voice transmission in Russian takes place. The first reports were made of the station on this frequency in 1973. So, I'm going to come back to this part in a minute. So, this article comes from BBC. So, in the middle of a Russian swampland, not far from the city of St. Petersburg, is a rectangular get- iron gate. Beyond its rusted bars is a collection of radio towers, abandoned buildings, and power lines, bordered by a dry stone wall.
1: <laughs>
2: What's wrong with my eyes? <laughs> This sinister location is the focus of a mystery which stretches back to the height of the Cold War. It is thought to be the headquarters of a radio station, which is now known as MDZHB instead of UVB-76, which the... Hold on, where did it go? The MDZHB stands for Michael Dimitri... Xenia Boris Is okay. what the new call letters were okay. Yeah. So does it stand for one thing? Yes okay. That no one has ever claimed to run Wait, what?
1: Nobody knows They don't know where the radio station came from? No It just appeared it from just nowhere?
2: popped up and is still actively on air right now Aliens, what? We listen to it on YouTube, there's a lot That's what we were listening yeah. to? What I had playing earlier, but it doesn't play anything. Except no, it's just, it's just, just the tones, and they say it for now and moment. then. It's interrupted it's just by voices. So twenty twenty four hours a day, seven days a week for the last three and a half decades, it's been broadcasting a dull, monotonous tone. Every Madonis. few, whatever. Sorry monotonous. Every few seconds, it's joined by a second sound like some ghostly ship sounding its foghorn. Oh. Then the drone continues. Once or twice a week, a man or a woman will read out some words in Russian such as dinghy or farming specialist. Wait, what? People talk?
1: Yes, ma'am. But nobody knows where...
2: What? No. Nope. Okay. And that's I'm it. Anyone anywhere in the world can listen in simply by tuning go the radio through. to the frequency f- Four six two five KHZ. Four six two five KHZ. Is the frequency. So four six two five kilohertz. It's so enigmatic, it's as if it was designed with cons- cons- conspiracy theorists in mind. Today the station has an online following numbering in the tens of thousands. What? Can I just sit yes, you're, ma'am. You're doing
1: bonkers.
2: I actually have um, a Reddit pulled up on my laptop to read once I'm like, done with this.
1: Like, you're going to read it. This, like, is the most,
0: it? this is the most Robin's been into uh, one of our topics, I think.
1: Right? right? She's feeling it. <laughs> right, this still gonna record reading? Yeah. Okay.
2: Tens of thousands who know <laughs> it affectionately as the buzzer. <laughs> The buzzer, no, it, just just buzzer. <laughs> it joins two similar mystery stations, Wait, the, p- the Pip and the Squeaky Wheel, <laughs> or what the, what the other two stations have been nicknamed. The Pip? The Pip. P-I-P. The Did you listen to that? No. <laughs> well, we know what the Squeaky Wheel sounds like. What's a Pip? As their fans readily admit themselves, they have absolutely no idea what they're listening to. What? You can- I mean, there's so many things really,
1: that be. I really just want to start something and play something really monotonous just so we can have
2: <laughs> In fact, no one does. There is absolutely no information in the signal, says David Stupples, okay, I was wondering if you could study it. an expert in signals intelligence from City University, okay, London. Well, how do you know? I, don't know. I mean, I get, I get it if
1: it's not earthly, but. He might not
2: know. The frequency is thought to belong to a Russian to the Russian military, though they've never actually admitted this. Oh, they never it first that. began broadcasting at the close of the Cold War, which I think I've said three times by now. Oh,
1: oh.
2: When communism was in decline, today it is transmitted from two locations the St. Petersburg site and a location near Moscow. Okay, it went from I, it but I, Okay. Some articles say it went from St. Petersburg to Moscow, and some say that it's broadcasting from both. So
1: the radio station moves? Yeah. It, tra- it travels? Wow. Okay. Interdimensional.
2: Bizarrely, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, rather than shutting down, the station's activity sharply increased. There's no shortage of theories to explain what the buzzer might be for, ranging from keeping in touch with submarines... To communing with aliens. One such idea. Is that it's acting as a dead hand. Mm-hmm. Signal. In the event Russia is hit by a nuclear attack. The drone will stop. And automatically trigger a retaliation. No questions asked. Just total nuclear obliteration on both sides. Okay. So we're saying that it's a nuclear site? Or that it's a trigger nuclear, nuclear. They're site? saying that if this sound goes dead, it's going to trigger pretty much a nuclear war between whoever hit Russia.
1: Okay. Okay.
2: This may not be as wacky as it sounds. The system was originally pioneered in the Soviet era, where it took the form of a computer system, which scanned the airwaves for signs of life or nuclear fallout. Alarmingly, many experts believe it may still be in use. As Russian President Vladimir Putin pointed out himself, in quotes, earlier, earlier this year, which was 2017, and the quote is, nobody would survive a nuclear war between Russia and the United States. Could the buzzer be warding one off? So Vladimir
1: Putin? Well, his, 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 oh, no. his, his quote he says, at the United States.
2: his says nobody would survive. Oh, that's it. That's the quote. Nobody would survive.
1: Okay, alright. So now it makes sense what you said, because basically what that's implying is that if anybody attacks Russia with nukes, they're just going to kill the world.
0: Or that both countries have the
2: weaponry too.
1: We're not the only two countries that haven't, though. No,
2: but I mean, it doesn't say how the dead hand... hand how no, that's not true. That's you know, I mean, that not true. North Korea
1: has nukes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry! We're the most likely crazy people. Iran has nukes. No, but like there's more of animosity. Actually we're getting along with Russia right now. Right now. Okay. As For some ha- people it doesn't take animosity. Again, North Korea.
2: They are they, I mean they, I do mention them. Okay. Go. In a little bit. As it happens, there are clues in the signal itself. Like all international radio, the buzzer operates at a relatively low frequency known as shortwave. Yes. This means that compared to local radio, mobile phones, and television signals, fewer waves pass through a single point every second. It also means they can travel a lot farther. It's also thanks to skywaves. Higher frequency radio signals can only travel in a straight line, eventually becoming lost as they bump into obstacles. Or reach the horizon. I almost said that wrong. <laughs> but shortwave frequencies have extra, have an extra trick. They can bounce off charged particles in the upper atmosphere, allowing them to zigzag between the Earth and the sky and travel thousands rather than tens of miles. Which brings us back to the dead hand theory. As you might expect, shortwave signals have proved extremely popular. Today, they are used by ships, aircraft, and the military to send... Messages across continents, oceans, and mountains, but there is a catch. The lofty layer isn't so much a flat mirror but a wave which undulates like the surface of the ocean. During the day, it moves steadily higher, while at night, it creeps down towards the earth. If you want to absolutely guarantee that your station can be heard on the other side of the planet, and if you're using it as a cue for nuclear war, You probably do. It's important to change the frequency depending on the time of day to catch up. The BBC World Service already does this. The buzzer does not. Another idea is that the radio station exists to sound out how far away the layer of charged particles is. To get good results from the radar system the Russians use to spot missiles, you need to know this, says Stubbles. The longer the signal takes to get up into the sky and down again, the higher it must be. Alas, that can't be it either. To analyze the layer's altitude, the signal would usually have a certain sound, like a car alarm going off, the result of ver- the result of varying the waves to get them just right. They sound nothing like the buzzer, says Stuckles. Intriguingly, there is a station with some striking similarities. The Lincolnshire Poacher. Where is that out we're in from the mid-1970s to 2008. Oh, okay. Just like the buzzer, it emanated from an undisclosed location thought to be somewhere in Cyprus. Oh. And just like the buzzer, its transmissions were just plain creepy. Oh. At the beginning of every hour, the station would play the first two bars of an English English folk tune, "The Lincolnshire Poacher," and this is the first two bars. Oh, tis my delight on the shining night, in the season of the year when I was a, when I was bound apprentice in famous Lincolnshire. T'was well I served my master for for nigh on seven years. After repeating this twelve times, it would move on to messages read by the disembodied voice of a woman reading groups of five numbers like one two three one two zero three six in a clipped upper English accent upper so class okay. English
1: accent <laughs> <laughs> clip, I didn't know about that. Okay, so but they they didn't know where okay. at this point my question is, Maybe in the 1970s, but now you're in the 2000s, and that one was uh, in operation until 2008. Correct. How do they not know where they are? Because there's ways to pinpoint that. And who's the woman? And how does mm-hmm. she get there? A the disembodied voice. She's not disembodied. She's got a body. Unless <laughs> she's Siri or Alexa.
2: To get to grips with what was going on it helps to go back to the 1920s the all Russian uh, the all Russian that r- years ago <laughs> the all Russian cooperative society or better known as Arcos was an important trade body responsible for overseeing transactions between the UK and the early Soviet Union or at least that's what they said they did <laughs> In May of 1927, years after a British secret agent caught an employee sneaking into a communist news office in London, police officers stormed the Arcos building. The basement had been rigged with an anti intruder device, and they discovered a secret room with no door handle in which workers were hurriedly burning documents. This was a blunder. Or the very first, the blunt. This was a blunder of the very first order, says Anthony Glees, who directs the Center for Security and Intelligence Studies at the University of Buckingham. Long ass title. To justify the raid, the Prime Minister had even read some of the deciphered telegraphs in the House of Commons.
1: Okay.
2: The upshot was that the Russians completely reinvented the way messages were encrypted. Almost overnight, they switched to one-time pads, which... (laughs)
1: One-time (laughs) pads.
2: In this system, a random key is generated by the person sending the message and shared only with the person receiving it. As long as the key really is perfectly random, the code cannot be cracked. There was no longer any need to worry about who could hear their
1: messages. Again, why if it's if it's randomly created every time then how's the receiver decipher it
2: we'll we'll get more into the one-time pad
1: okay (laughs) (laughs) all
2: right one time pad here we go enter the number stations radio stations that broadcast coded messages to spies all over the world soon even the british were doing it if you can't if you can't beat them join them as they say it's quite difficult to generate a completely random number because a system for doing so will by its very nature be predictable, exactly what you're trying to avoid. Instead of officers in London, instead, officers in London found an ingenious solution that hang a microphone out of the window on Oxford Street and record the traffic. There might be a bus beeping at the same time as a police officer shouting. The sound is unique, it will never happen again says stubbles then they'd convert this into a random code of course that didn't stop people from trying to break them during world war ii the british realized that they could in fact decipher the messages but they'd have to get their hands on the one-time pad that was used to encrypt them we discovered that the russians used the out-of-date sheets of one-time pads, a substitute toilet paper in Russian <laughs> army hospitals in East Germany, says Glees. Yeah. Needless to say, British intelligence officers soon found themselves rifling through the contents of Soviet latrines.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that is not, so the, pleasure, the new
2: channel of communications was so useful, it didn't take long before the number of stations had popped up all over the world. Russian counting men and terry ripe the lincolnshire poacher sister station which also contained bars from an old english folk song in name at least the buzzer fits right in it also fits with the series of arrests across the united states back in 2010 wait what I like that there's so many twists and turns. Why is there a series of arrests in the
1: U.S.? Some of the buzzard.
2: The FBI announced that it had broken up a long-term deep-cover network of Russian agents, who were said to have received their instructions by a coded message on shortwave radio, specifically 7887
1: kHz.
2: Now, North Korea. Now, North Korea is getting in on the action too. On April 14th, 2017, the broadcaster at Radio Pyongyang began. I'm giving review works in elementary information technology lessons of the remote education university of number 27 expedition agents. And that's the quote. Okay,
1: yeah,
2: this is ill concealed military me- this ill-concealed military message was followed by a series of page numbers, number 69 on page 823, page 957, which look like which look a lot like a code. It may come as a surprise that number stations are still in use, but they hold one major advantage. Though it's possible to guess who is broadcasting, anyone can listen to the messages. So you don't know who they are being sent to. Mobile phones and the internet may be quicker, but open a text or email from a known intelligence agency and you could be rumbled. It's a compelling idea. The buzzer has been hiding in plain sight, instructing a network of illicit Russian spies all over the world. There's just one problem. The buzzer never broadcasts any numbered messages. And you said <laughs> occasionally there is a broken message. This doesn't strictly matter since one-time pads can be used to translate anything from code words to garbled speech. If this phone call was encrypted, the encrypted side coming as E-N-E-J-E-K-D-H-E-J-E-N-W, but then it would come out on the other side sounding like a normal speech. Right, says Stuffles, but this would leave traces in the signal. To send information over the radio, essentially all you're doing is varying the height or space of the waves being transmitted. For example, two low waves in a row means X, or three waves closer together means Y. When a signal is carrying information instead of neat, evenly spaced waves like ripples on the ocean, you're left with a wave like the jagged silhouette of an ECG. This isn't the buzzer. Instead, many believe that the station is a hybrid of two things. The constant drone is just a marker saying this frequency is mine, this frequency is mine to stop people from using it. It only became a number station. It only becomes a number station in moments of crisis, such as if Russia were invaded. Then it would function as a way to instruct their worldwide spy network and military forces on standby in remote areas. After all, this is a country around 70 times the size of the UK. Right. It, seems they're all, it seems they're already been pract- practicing. In 2013, they issued a special message, Command 135 issued. That was said to be test message for full combat readiness, says uh, somebody named Goldmanis, a radio enthusiast who listens to the station from his home in the Baltic States. The mystery of the Russian radio may have been solved, but if the, it's fans are right, let's just hope that drone never stops. I do have something else that uh, I skipped okay, over. But if, if the fans are the only ones thinking, that, this is kind of a day, I don't know, day by day kind of thing from a different article that I found. From a lonely rusted tower in a forest north of Moscow, a mysterious shortwave radio station transmitted day and night for at least the decade leading up to 1992. It broadcast almost nothing but beeps. After that, it switched to buzzes, generally 21 to 34 per minute, each lasting roughly a second. The signal was said to emanate from the grounds of a mini-military city near the village of Poverovo. And that is how it's said, because I Googled it. <laughs> and very rarely, perhaps, every once, perhaps once every few weeks, the monotony was broken by a male voice reciting brief sequences of numbers and words, often strings of Russian names, Anna, Nikolai, Ivan, Tatiana, Roman, But the balance of the airtime was filled by a steady, almost maddening series of inexplicable tones. The amplitude and pitch of the buzzing sometimes shifted and the intervals between tones would fluctuate. Every hour on the hour, the station would buzz twice, quickly. None of the upheavals that had enveloped Russia in the last decade of the Cold War and the first two decades of the post-Cold War era. (coughs) Perestroika... The end of the Afghan war, the Soviet implosion, the end of price controls, the bombing of parliament, the first Chechen war, the oligarchs, the financial crisis, the second Chechen war, the rise of Putinism had ever kept UVB 76. As the station's call sign ran from its incrucible... Purpose during that time, its broadcast came to hold on. I wrote really small here. Trans, I don't know, about Trans, I don't mm-hmm. know. did
1: write really small there. In
2: transfer a small code, <laughs> I don't think it's transferred. Oh, short waves transferred a short wave cadre of short wave radio enthusiast who tuned in and documented nearly every signal it transmitted, although the buzzer had always been an unknown quantity. Would you shut up? (laughs) It was also a reassuring constant droning on with a dark, monotone like regularity. They don't know what they're listening to, but they're fascinated by the by the strangeness of the mindless evil beeping but on june 5th 2010 the buzzing ceased no one no announcements no explanations only silence the following day the broadcast resumed as if nothing had happened for the rest of june and july uvb6 behaved more
1: or what did i say you said (laughs) uvb6
2: uvb76 behaved more or less as it always had these were some short-lived perturbations perturbations, including bits of what sounded like Morse code, but nothing dramatic. In mid-August, the buzzing stopped again, it resumed, it stopped. It resumed again. Okay, so
1: enough, we're in, um, then on
2: August 25th at 10:15 a.m, UVB 76 went entirely haywire. First, there there was silence, then a series of knocks and shuffles that made it sound like someone was in the room. Before this day, all the beeping buzzing codes and numbers had hinted at an evil force hovering on the airwaves. Now, it seemed as though the wizard were suddenly about to reveal himself. For the first week of September, transmissions were interrupted frequently, usually with what sounded like recorded snippets of Dance of the Little Swans from Swan Lake. On the evening of September 7th, something more dramatic, one listener even called it existen- existential, transpired. At 8.48 p.m. Moscow time, a male voice issued a new call sign, Michael Dimitri Zinyay Boris, indicating that the station was now to be called MDZYB. This was followed by one of UV, UVB sixes typically. Seventy six. UVB seventy <laughs> sixes typically nebulous messages. 04797. No. Zero, four, seven, nine, seven,
1: bitch. No. <laughs> yes. Nine seven nine. I was like, I'm looking at it. Nine seven nine. Leave me alone. You apologized to your sister. <laughs> She's just trying to help you. I, I'm numbered dyslexic. okay? <laughs> she went to talk to Seven nine. <laughs> no. God. Seven Read it again. UVB76 <laughs> did a thing. Yes, you can. Because no. you can edit it.
2: 04979 D R E N D O U T, followed by a longer series of numbers, mm-hmm. then T R E N E R S K I Y, and yet more numbers.
1: So we don't know what any of it means, but we do know nope. that if <laughs> it <even laughs> starts <stopped, it even laughs> transmitting, the world doesn't end because we didn't die. But Unless we're dead, and we don't know. What anymore. was one of the years that it stopped? Do you know, um, this was 2010. 2010. There was more to There's this. A I just that at some point in
0: 2010
1: we went to another dimension instead of going to hell. I thought it was in 2012. The a that too. Maybe we're just going in and out of but all this the was, dimensions. This
2: happened in June, June, July, August, and September of 2010. 2010. Which I mean, there was more to it. I just decided to move on to another article. Well, I'm to I did have me. a couple Reddit
1: things. You
2: know what the number mean?
1: What does oh yeah
2: so this was posted so about fun. eight days ago on reddit this is one person's theory on UVB, uvb 76's actual purpose while many have said that once the buzzer stops buzzing we're doomed and that, is, that was debunked because the buzzer has sometimes shut off for repairs. I believe that the strange message UVB-76 sends out is just practice messages for a nuclear war. In parentheses, UVB-76 is located in a major strategic communications hub near St. Petersburg. It was formerly located near Moscow Moscow. Moscow um, in the city of Poverovo. In the event that an actual nuclear war begins, UVB-76 would send out a message. Officers at missile sites will match the message with a certain code that is changed frequently as to prevent any form of interference from hostile power. If the message matches with the code, launch procedures may begin. After the strategic missile sites at each military district begins firing their missiles, UVB-76 falls silent. Remember, this is just a theory. If you think my theory is completely wrong, please connect me. Please connect me in the comments section. Correct Correct me. (laughs)
1: Please connect me.
2: (laughs) And then um, I know it won't play through here, but going back into the main thread, there's a bunch of um, people post like certain parts of the sounds from a day. And that was just from nine days ago, or eight days ago, that somebody had posted that. Um, Twelve, 12 days ago.
1: Twelve
2: days ago, it says.
1: Oh okay.
2: Okay. Um, there's another in here from a different user from twelve days ago. It says, "Okay, so I'm listening to into UVB seventy six, and I hear a weird sound that sounds like an alien abduction." but right after it hits with static. So what is your opinions on this? What is it?
1: I just want to say Robin was listening to it today and it gave me a headache, which still hurts. I mean, And I wasn't even home most of the day today. (laughs) But I came in at one point and it was like, yeah. It was worse than any number of nails on a thousand chalkboards.
2: This one is from 23 days ago. The title says, so, what are the Russians up to? We had about 25 messages yesterday. Something must be happening, but what? Do you have any ideas? Well, so
0: 25, 25 messages? And 23 days ago, that was like December
1: of 2019. Uh, right. Somebody said
2: military exercise. They do this every couple of months. Well, I mean, which is fair. Um, They also say impeachment plannings, UK election. I heard that their only aircraft carrier caught fire yesterday. Could that be part of it? Have there been any voice transmissions today? Not so far. Update, there was a message at 1939 GMT time. We'll upload ASAP. Ending the recording now. Nothing happening after 2100. So I mean, there's just a bunch of I, nobody knows, and I mean, it can be shut down if it needs to be shut down, but nobody knows anything about it. The Russians haven't admitted to having it. Oh
0: my goodness! I'm gonna use it further. No, I don't know. It just doesn't That's what
2: make
1: That's like me sense. and
0: a girl in middle school and high school. We created. We would pick one textbook. And instead of writing notes to each other, we would, um, our notes would be like 843-7-this-that. And that would lead you to a specific, it, it took time, but also nobody else could read them because they didn't know which textbook we were using. But we
2: This one that. from 24 days ago says, I just had a voice message from UVB6. Not that they had one, they 76. heard one. UVB 76 and <laughs> the PIP. If you're going to. <laughs> they both, Wait. they both some reason sounded a bit in panic, talking fast and breathing a bit more intense. Something is happening. As what? I am making this post, I'm getting messages from both stations.
1: Why didn't they? That would have been December 11th. No. The pip and the squeaky wheel. The squeaky wheel, thank you. I was trying to I was gonna say the squeaky pipe. (laughs) (laughs) I have the squeaky door. There was a
2: voice on November twelfth of twenty nineteen. Um I mean there's just a bunch on the if you're listening to any information on it. You can
0: send us an email at not your normal paranormal three at gmail.com. We
2: would love more information. And I mean, that's all I have. I will insert a clip of the buzzers buzzing. <laughs> <laughs> you guys got anything else to add?
1: No, I'm super intrigued by this though. I, I know. Mean, I was
2: really happy that I chose this one instead of the other. The
1: Winchester Mystery House is very like well, it's very. Interesting. And Kylie's little tiny wooden bodies were very interesting. It was semi interesting. But this is like oh I wanna know what's going on.
2: And I mean while well, it didn't And I, I can't
1: listen to it. I'm sorry. I know there are people out there who are fans who can listen to it, but I literally walked in the door today and ramen had it on and it about brought me to my knees. It's I have migraines anyway. It's bothersome to the ears, that's for sure. It I not just the ear, it's like the nerve endings.
2: But in my was, cerebellum. I was happy that I chose this mysterious place. And while, I mean, I never actually talked about the place itself because nobody knows. Never heard of it. But well, you, you can't place. talk about the
1: place itself.
2: Well, no, we hot. don't know
1: what it is. Um, we know it may be in
2: Poverovo or it may be in Moscow. Right. Okay. For all we know, it could be in my own backyard. It's not. <clears throat> So, thanks for listening.
1: Thanks for tuning in. Listening in. We hope you learned something. We hope you enjoyed it. If you have suggestions for us, and we have gotten a few, thank you so much for people who have sent in ideas. Kylie's keeping a list of them. We are going to touch on them because some of them are, I haven't heard of them.
0: One of the next couple episodes, I'm doing one.
1: Yeah. So please um, send us ideas. You can
0: send us your ideas to our email, not your normal paranormal three at gmail.com. Or you can send them to us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at not Thanks for listening
1: guys. Thanks for listening. Um, we, hope you're, we, will. we hope you're having a good new year. Kylie read a thing the other day that said, you know, three <laughs> days in first day was good. Second day, not so much third day. World War 3, so stay positive. We're on stay day four. weird. We like it like that. See you guys later. Bye.